Welcome to episode seven of the Into the Hopper podcast. I'm joined today by my friend and uh, twice former colleague, Brenton Mallon. Brenton uh, studied ocean engineering and worked as a systems engineer before making a pivot uh, around 2015 into the data science field. Uh, Brenton and I worked together at a cybersecurity startup for several years um, back then and then uh, recently worked together at my current employer uh, until last week when Brenton moved on to a to a new job. In fact, I guess around this time last week, we would have been having our one-on-one because you were my manager for a brief period of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that uh, feels like a lifetime ago already. <laughs> it's because you haven't been working all week, unlike me. Fun employment definitely has its benefits. We can just consider this our uh, one-on-one for the world to hear. Okay. I'm down for that. All 150 people in the world, anyway, who listen to this podcast. <laughs> Seems optimistic. <laughs> so, <laughs> what's ocean engineering? Uh, good question, and I get it a lot. Um, ocean engineering is, like all other engineering disciplines, um, focusing around solving problems, uh, Lots of math, lots of physics, all that stuff. It's essentially an amalgamation of multiple engineering disciplines in the marine environment. Um, so you study things like corrosion, wave mechanics, your your things you would think of when you think of ocean uh, marine classes like uh, oceanography. You also take things like um, computer classes, mechanical classes, um, all kinds of stuff, which I think is what the appeal for me was. Um, I went into school as an EE or electrical engineering major um, and switched to ocean engineering mainly because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And ocean engineering had a program that kind of was very broad and allowed me to get exposure to a bunch of different topics so that I can maybe find something that is, you know, more of my calling. That's interesting. Um, my master's degree is in operations research from North Carolina State University, and our program was similar in that it was an interdisciplinary program. Um, and I really enjoyed that aspect of it. I was able to take classes in a in computer science, industrial engineering, math, statistics. People could also do like business engineering, uh, economics, things like that. Um, but it gave me a breadth that's been really valuable in my uh, career as a data scientist. Yeah, I think it's it's about perspective, right? If you you broaden your perspective, you can appreciate a bunch of different things and approach challenges in a different way that somebody else might not have not having had that perspective. So what kind of things do ocean engineers do in industry like they build buoys? Uh yeah, certain buoys. Um so the main two destinations I think most of my classmates have probably gone into is either going to be naval defense work or oil industry. Um, I haven't really kept up with anybody to know if they've gone elsewhere, but um, typically your naval will be things like um, I was working on part of my master's was working on underwater mine countermeasure stuff. So, you know, underwater vehicles, that sort of thing. Um, Oil could be anything, you know, oil rig stuff, I think. Uh, I haven't, I didn't want to go into it, so I didn't really look into it much. Um, and I fell into 
the defense world mainly because of my uh, master's thesis was funded by the Navy um, to do underwater acoustics uh, processing, digital image and signal processing. Do ocean engineers build ships or is that some other engineering discipline? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, naval architecture is something you can do. That We took classes in that as well. You could go into ship design. Um, I think an old colleague went to Newport News, I think, to build some, to do some naval architecture stuff. Um, you could also do underwater vehicles, autonomous vehicles. That's a thing people do. Uh, there could be, I have a, had a friend that went into, I think, something to do with bridges and corrosion of bridges um, around, you know, salt water and stuff like that to improve integrity. So you can do a lot of things. I think it, it really, it's all around being around the marine environment, really. Um, so it can be very harsh on different things like your materials and all that stuff. You worked sort of in that broader space for, for several years, and then you got interested in data science. And uh, I think I, I'm interested in having people hear about that transition that you made, because um, I, I think you... Well, <laughs> it seems like data science, everyone ha- kind of has to trod their own path, but I think you took an interesting route there. Um, it'd be helpful for people to hear about it. Yeah, I think, um, so it didn't, it started somewhat early on where I got some exposure. I took a data mining is what they called it back then. <laughs> um, I guess maybe some people still call it, but it was a data mining course I took in grad school uh, while I was doing my project. My project was essentially... Um, it was called target discrimination uh, using low frequency sonar. So essentially you can have an object laying on the ocean floor or beneath the ocean floor. And if you use a low enough frequency sound wave, it essentially induces a mechanical load onto the object and therefore causes it to ring. Kind of like you would hit a bell and it would ring. That ring would be parametric to materials and shape and size of that object. Um, so trying to find ways to discriminate between types of objects in that way uh, was really my focus. So essentially, if I were to call it in machine learning terms, that would be feature engineering, trying to come up with ways to figure out how to discriminate between objects of different types. Uh, started out with actual CFD, so uh, computational fluid dynamics modeling um, to try and understand really the physics going on with that vibration in the objects. So it wasn't really particularly out of the blue, um, but I didn't really start getting into it until my second job in the defense world where I met um, our mutual friend, William, and we got into doing Kaggle competitions, or at least I got introduced into doing that. Uh, One of the first Kaggle competitions we did was galaxy classification. And I think I didn't do any of the machine learning part of that because I was still pretty new, but I was able to do the image processing part of that um, because of just past experience. So I was able to do some image segmentation for the galaxy pictures to remove all the background stars and all the the noise essentially in the image to isolate the galaxy of interest. Um, And then I think William and uh, maybe a couple other people were involved doing the actual modeling. And then from there, I taught myself Python and, you know, all the machine learning stuff that I've done. Had you been doing programming in, in your uh, schooling? I, I guess MATLAB probably? 
Uh, yeah. So we started off, I took a one course, it was C++ and MATLAB joined. Um, and then everything else after that in class, uh, the homeworks and all that were, were done in MATLAB. Mainly, I think the visualization MATLAB's pretty great for that. Um, it's not great on the wallet though. What was your route for learning Python? Uh, just through that Coggle competition. Um, I just wasn't really doing much at work, uh, is, funding, at least for the defense world, was pretty slim during the time, and we were pretty low in terms of tasking, so just took the time to teach myself Python. Uh, It's really approachable and, uh, you know, made it easy. And it being, especially with NumPy, being very close to something like MATLAB, where you're dealing with the array, uh, you know, matrices and all that stuff, um, made it really approachable. Like, it was an easy transition. I had had not done a lot of MATLAB um, before learning Python. So I didn't have that familiarity, but I, I think, I mean, that's certainly where the NumPy and that kind of world came from was former MATLAB people. So that makes a lot of sense. And you've done Python predominantly now for six years. Yeah. It's the only program language I use. <laughs> <laughs> As you were learning, you did this Kaggle competition, um, you were able to then transition into data science through, uh, well, I guess our, our mutual friend and, and uh, former colleague took a, a data science role at a tech or in a cybersecurity startup, and you were then able to make a move onto his team. Is that how that worked? Yeah, I rode those coattails, and it wouldn't be the first time that I've done that, I guess. Um, <laughs> so I was fortunate enough to apply for a job. I think they had sent an offer to someone else and that person declined and I guess they were left with me. So uh, they took me in. It was a very small data science group for research and development um, in cybersecurity for bot mitigation. And pretty soon after I'd started, it became just two of us. Uh, and, you know, we had to, we were responsible for everything building everything, monitoring all that stuff, doing just research in general. Um, it was a great time to learn a lot. I learned a lot very quickly, um, sort of trial by fire kind of thing. And that was your first introduction to like AWS and that world, or had you done any of that before? I had not done any of that before. That was my first time doing AWS, uh, <laughs> waiting for EC2 instances to provision and all that good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> here you are six years later still waiting for machines to provision <laughs> i've gone serverless mostly so i don't have to wait for anything <laughs> people ask me routinely like how do i move from math into data science or from something into data science like do you have from your own experience or whether you you know recommend your own path or just like things you've learned what advice that you give to people um trying to make that move it's really hard to say. Um, it's a different world, I think, now than even when I started getting involved. Um, I feel like competition's gotten way tougher um, than it used to be. I feel like sometimes there are jobs that, like, if I were to start applying now, I wouldn't be able to actually get, uh, you know, which is where networking helps. So I guess number one is networking is is very beneficial. Um Also, having a portfolio, I think, helps a lot. Being able to be 
be in a position to demonstrate your skill set in some way is really good. Um, I've had people express that they were appreciative that I had a portfolio that they can go look at and see what my, my abilities and skill sets are. Um, can you elaborate on that? Like what, what does a portfolio look like or what can it look like? I mean, it can look like a bunch of different things. I can just talk about really what mine is just cause that's the only experience I really have. And so, um, mine is essentially a website with some blog posts. Uh, I think my cadence right now is like one post a year, <laughs> which isn't really helpful. Um, but you know, it is something that is there. If it's written down, it's recorded and you can point to it. It's tangible for somebody to, you know, gain an appreciation for what you can bring to the table. It could be blog posts about anything that you explored or learned. Um, it could be web applications that you've made and, uh, are accessible to somebody to give a try. Um, for something like machine learning, it's really difficult because (laughs) it's just a very broad definition of what that job role can be. It can be anything from more of an ops MLE type of person to just a research and development data exploration kind of role where you don't really write production software or something like that. You write exploratory code and then someone takes it from there kind of thing. So it really depends on where in that spectrum you feel like you want to lie. Um, There are benefits to being specialized in one area and there are benefits to being more of a generalist, which uh, I think is where I sit in that spectrum. Um, so in terms of portfolio, you could demonstrate your ability to go quote unquote, like full stack machine learning, where you can have a model in production somewhere sitting that someone can access through a web app. And, you know, you can demonstrate, Hey, I built this model. This is what I did to build it. These are the things that I encountered while trying to do that, but you can go ahead and play around with it here. And you can do that pretty cheaply and quickly using something like, uh, you know, serverless infrastructure, something like Zappa or something like that to deploy uh, a web API. So I have a couple of those on my portfolio. They're old um, and I haven't done anything new, um, but, you know, it is still there. Like I said, it's it's tangible for someone to to appreciate what you can do, um, you know, which is really important um, in my opinion. It seems to me... You know, having interviewed a lot um, over the last 10 years, that there's kind of two phases. One is like getting your foot in the door um, to actually get the interview, which networking helps a ton with like a, a lot of places. If you can get an internal referral, you can get connected with a recruiter at least. Um, and also I think that maybe often where your portfolio comes in, like, you know, it's something that makes your resume stand apart if, if somebody comes across your website or something. Um, and then after that, it's the interview process, which in my experience is often fairly detached from that first stage. Sometimes the, the portfolio type stuff comes up in the interview. Um, but in my experience, it seems like people are more interested in, um, yeah, I mean, kind of the more traditional like interview questions or a take-home problem or something. Which are so the, those two phases are somewhat different skill sets, but you really have to work them both. Like you could be awesome at you know live coding problems, but if you can't actually get an interview, then you don't get the opportunity to show that, or right. or vice versa. Yeah, uh, I definitely agree. Um, portfolio stuff is helpful for getting you in the door and across the threshold. Um, 
but you know, interviewing and that is just skill set in and of itself. And it's an art form, I guess you have to practice. Uh, and it's tough, right? Because nobody interviews the same. Um, sometimes you'll go to a place where they're really technical and sometimes you'll go to a place where they're more, uh, someone once used the phrase will versus skill kind of thing where, you know, if you, they're more interested in your tenacity than they are really about your skill set. Um, so it's, it's really hard to prepare generally for that. It's just cause everyone does it differently. I have a blog post. Um, I wrote several years ago now, but called reflections on being turned down from data science interviews or something like that, where I kind of outline a lot of my experience with, with that very problem. Like I, companies are actually getting better at like providing more kind of guidelines as to what you're going to cover in the interview. Um, but you know, a lot of stuff is, could totally come out of left field. Even if you do like live coding type things, which are pretty common, like you, you don't know. Um, you know, I had an interview where I was asked to, it was actually a problem that was copied straight from the leak code website, but it was like reconstructing a binary tree from an infix and prefix representation of the tree. Um, and it's been like, I, I don't know if I've really thought about the terms infix and prefix since taking, uh, um, algorithms in what 2011 or something like that. <laughs> it's just like, it's not, it's like not a insanely hard problem, but just if you're not something you're familiar with, it's, uh, kind of a tough one to tackle, especially if you don't remember what the terms right. mean, which is where I was. <laughs> yeah. And that if it's a surprise or you're, you're not really sure of what to expect, I mean, it compounds your, emotions through the interview process where you can stumble and you get even more nervous and things like that. And then you start getting self-conscious of like, all oh, these people are thinking that I'm, I don't know what I'm doing and all that stuff. Um, you know, which is a big part of all that, at least for me. I don't know if you want to share about, um, you, you had a little bit of experience in a, like a, doing a data science mentoring program. Um, so I did a mentorship with a mentee through sharpest minds, um, he has actually successfully landed a data oriented role, which is, it's humbling, right? Um, you know, a goal of mine is to just try and have a positive impact on the people around me and being able to do that and see it, uh, realized in that way, um, is, is very rewarding. Um, but yeah, so my goal through that was to try and provide as much perspective as possible. Uh, so the curriculum I set forth in that was to go from looking for a data set, something that is of interest, asking questions that you want to find answers to, you know, munging around with the data, figuring out the challenges there, uh, processing it to a standpoint and, you know, building a model and things that come along that process are things like, okay, well, you realize really quickly rabbit holes can get very steep very quickly and you wind up falling them like down them. And you have to realize that you have to narrow scope to a point. So that way you can make sure you have something tangible at the end of it. Um, the mentorship having been time bounded, you know, helped a lot with making sure that we did that. But, um, you know, it's just something you have to be cognizant of. Um, so the goal for me was to make sure that they got a, as much perspective as possible around the entire process. Um, not so much to train them on being able to do all those things, 
but to get exposure to maybe highlight areas that might be of more interest than others. Um, like we were talking about earlier, where it's just machine learning is a broad spectrum of responsibilities or roles. Uh, and you may want to be a part of all of them, or maybe some of them just don't really interest you at all. Uh, so trying to provide that perspective of each of those processes along the way um, was really my goal. Uh, it's interesting to, it's sort of where I got the idea, like the perspective that trying to find a data science job now is very much more difficult than it used to be, at least in my experience. Um, the expectation of what you can do is, or what you should be able to do when applying for a role seems to be pretty high. Um, they want everybody to go from doing, you know, Python coding to actual production system level uh, development and management and all that stuff. Um, all of your cloud software or architectures. It's just, there's a lot that people expect and it can be pretty overwhelming uh, to try and, and present to somebody that you have experience and all that sort of thing. Um, you know, and I think if you can, I may have gotten off track from the question, but I think if you can illustrate in some way or demonstrate in some way that you have a working knowledge of those things, I think that can go a long way, even if it's not something that's an expert, you're like an expert in. Um, so yeah, lessons learned. <laughs> Let's get back to the question, I guess. So lessons learned from the mentorship was that, right, is trying to make sure realizing that the expectations of the role are so high and trying to figure out a way to, in a limited time, to expose somebody to each of those areas um, just made me realize how much there is and how overwhelming it can be for someone new. Yeah, it's a tough world. I mean, I, I don't know often how to respond to people who want to move into the the field. Um, it's just, it feels very complicated and it, it makes me grateful that I started in the early days, I guess. And not that there isn't, you know, opportunity uh, and need for people. Um, but um, I think it's, it's a, uh, still such a fuzzy and amorphous field of data science or machine learning that it's um, it's tricky for people to get in. Although, I mean, at the same time, I guess, you know, there's more being taught to undergrads these days. Um, I mean, when I was at North Carolina State for grad school, 2010 to 2012, even then, like anything machine learning, um, data science, well, the, the NC State did um, kind of pioneer a data science master's degree, but outside, and that was a kind of a specialized program. But outside of that, in the computer science, that's department, uh, other departments, machine learning was kind of an oddball still. Um, and uh, I mean, I took a few classes, but they were <clears throat> pretty small and uh, not not popular. Um, much less like the whole kind of world of just the technology and like, you know, Python, cloud infrastructure, all that kind of stuff. And maybe that was starting to come up in the computer science department, but um, I didn't learn any of that in school for sure. Yeah, it's definitely become more common. I think probably one perspective that might be missing is the business side of it. Um, you know, we focus on engineers trying to learn the trade and all that. Um, 
but there's also the business and the product aspect of where does machine learning fit in, you know, the business or, or the product that someone is trying to produce, um, which can be, you know, just as important as the data scientist coming to the table <laughs> or, yeah, or, more, or important. more important. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. It's one thing to, to bring some like a machine learning person on board to solve a problem. It's another thing to bring them on board to find a problem to solve. Um, <laughs> so what I'm trying to say, I guess, is that like companies want to employ, you know, machine learning engineers or data scientists to do certain tasks. Um, but there's, hasn't really been in terms of like formal, at least not that I've seen formal discussion around how do we formulate a data science problem? Uh, and what does that really mean? And what are the benefits and the costs of doing that or exploring that? Do you have uh, personal experience <laughs> with this uh, conundrum? Uh, I think you and I both do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. For yeah. sake of my future employment, I'll yeah, I, leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a huge issue. And I, I mean, I, I saw this from my very first job out of grad school. Um, you know, I, I, I tell people I was a data science hype hire. Like that I was the first person hired at this fairly large consulting company um, that had a lot of very technical people. Uh, I was the first person with the title of data scientist. Um, and then when I was brought on, it was just like, Oh, we've read the articles <laughs> about data science, but why do we actually need right. a data scientist? Um, and yeah, it was, it was unclear as to what I was there for. And that's a hard thing, hard road to trot. And I've, somewhat avoided that particular problem in, in recent years by kind of moving more onto the engineering side um, and being more kind of engineering support versus the one being sent out to actually find problems to solve and figure out if the data can solve the problem. Cause uh, that is actually very, very hard. Yeah. I guess in terms of like, if you were a job seeker though, you know, there are ways to try and, snuff that out from a potential cust like company you're interviewing with or something like that. I guess one of the things I try and do is understand level of patience to explore ideas, what their expectations are in terms of what do they think machine learning can do for them. Um, try and understand whether or not the people asking something of the team appreciate what they're asking. Um, what are the challenges and what are the costs and the risks essentially? Um, because like we were talking about rabbit holes earlier, you can go down a rabbit hole thinking one thing, find out some more information, and that leads you down another one. And you could be five, six months in a project and really not have a product out of it because you're finding new information as you go along. Um, is there a tolerance for that at the company you're working for kind of thing? Do you think that's something you can like ask about at the interview phase? Yeah, I was trying to think of like, Maybe I should have posed the question of like, well, how would you do it if you were trying to suss out whether or not um, you are that DS hype hire or are they serious about it or, you know, are they making traction or is this something completely new? Um, you know, if it's new, can you articulate what the risks are there and use that as part of like your negotiation, I guess, for the role? Um, I've partially tried to mitigate that by... <laughs> not being um, 
kind of a solo data scientist, like going places that have established teams um, where right. you know, that doesn't fall entirely on me. Um, so also like trying to understand, you know, what the role of product management is at a company um, and just asking questions about like, what's where, who sets the product direction, you know, where, where's it, what's the direction right now? Um, what, what's the relationship between the data science team and product manager or manage management team? Um, and even just trying to understand like where a data science team fits in the broader organization, uh, I think is informative and there are different models for that. And I think different models can work. Um, but you know, I, I don't know, I just try to probe as much as possible into, um, into those questions, you know, as, as I can. And I think, I find that people, once you start asking questions like that, they start to resonate usually with the, the people you're interviewing with. Um, and even if you don't get the the total story, you can kind of start to read people's reactions and, and, uh, hear what things give them nervous laughter <laughs> about what's going on at the company. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that's kind of segues into another really key skill set, I guess, for the role would be communication. Um, and I think that's in, like going back to the mentorship. That's another thing I tried to uh, support and foster uh, is communication. So that can be in different forms, right? It could be communicating your work in terms of presentation. It could be communicating to people in interviews, uh, setting expectations, all that kind of stuff. And that is a skill set like any other that takes practice. Um, it takes a certain level of confidence i think too which is gained over time through experience um but it is pretty critical to be able to express what your intentions are what the expectations are understand and question other people's expectations and perspectives making sure that you're all on the same page uh you know and doing that at some regular cadence so that you you maintain that level of uh sort of shared understanding of what's going on um, in terms of interviewing, you know, being able to sell yourself, your skill set. Uh, that is something that's always been extremely difficult for me. Um, you know, it's definitely not easy, um, but practicing and being able to be articulate and talk confidently about your experience um, is pretty major. Uh, and then that goes into the role as well, right? Being able to talk to, your stakeholders, whoever is going to be consuming your output, could be somebody technical, could be someone not technical. Uh, being able to do that is and express that and share those ideas so that people understand um, is a pretty key uh, skill set to have. I mean, it could also even go to the networking, right? Like if you're going to go to a conference or something like that, give a talk, being able to, to talk about your work uh, eloquently or at least maybe not eloquently, but to a point where it, it's consumable, um, it's appreciable by people uh, can go a long way. And that, that's a kind of never ending thing, right? That's um, it maybe even becomes more and more important over time as you become, you know, have more responsibility or maybe have people under you, you work on bigger projects. Right. Like you have to um, continually be con communicating about that and articulating that. And, uh, 
you can't take for granted that even your own manager will know um, exactly what you're doing. Yeah. And that's where like the trying to be candid about everything can come into play. Um, Being able to say, I don't know, or ask someone for help um, or any of that sort of thing is really important. But I think even more important than that is establishing an environment where someone can feel like they can do that is pretty key. Um, you know, which is, we're getting in, I guess, a tension, like transitions into culture in terms of topic. Um, but by being able to communicate and set expectations and do all stuff, you can influence culture to establish an environment that allows you to do, to be vulnerable in that sense. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's a good direction to go. I mean, that's something you care a lot about is, uh, I mean, you're a very you know, p- people centric person, um, but you, you care about the environment that you work in and also the environment that you're helping creating with others, which I, you know, I've seen in, in both places we've worked together. Um, are there other aspects, other ways in which you've tried to you know, influence and um, shape the culture of the companies you've worked at? So my role prior to uh, my newly departed role uh, was very much sort of a very small startup mentality. There was a lot of fighting fires, work until 3 a.m. It, was, it wasn't a very healthy environment um, emotionally, I guess. And I tried to help influence them to move to more of a uh, prioritization communication around expectations and sort of that sort of stuff. Um, but a big part of that was very candid retrospectives um, to the point where pretty much treating them as like a group therapy session. Right. And it's tough because you have to build that trust with the, with the people around you. And if it's something you want to influence, I think you have to do that by example. Um, you have to be willing to be vulnerable uh, to the people around you to just show that you can be, that you are trying to make the environment as safe as possible for them to reciprocate. Um, be as genuine as you can when you say things like, you know, your opinion matters or um, how do you honestly feel about this? Um, other things you can do, I think, to help foster that is there's the notion of like a blameless retrospective kind of thing where, you know, if something goes wrong or somebody has done something that either offended somebody or, you know, maybe wasn't as positive or productive as it could have been, you don't necessarily need to call that person out on that behavior or something like that. You can just say like, you know, I've witnessed this sort of thing happening, you know, try and share perspective as to why that might not be really a positive thing um, to try and give uh, that somebody a notion of consideration and from other people's perspectives, essentially. Um, you know, we all come to the table with a different mind, with different influences and different backgrounds and things that impact the way we view just anything. So being open to knowing that that is the case and trying understanding everybody's perspective um, and what they're coming to the table with allows them, I think, to feel heard. Um, they, you know, you may not end up in a spot that, you know, they might have wanted you to end up in, but trying to make sure that they feel like they're in a p- place to express themselves, they're being heard, um, 
you know, and that's not going amiss essentially. Yeah. That's really helpful. Um, what, what would you say is, uh, our, uh, team game nights essential to, uh, company culture? <laughs> uh, so when we were at the still, I, I got pretty heavily into for context for people who don't know. Um, I got heavily into modern tabletop board games. Uh, I amassed a sizable collection so far, uh, but that has dwindled. So anyway, um, the way you build trust with anybody or a group of people is to spend time with them. Um, And the trick there is trying to appreciate or at least create an environment that is inviting to a bunch of different people. Um, we say game night. I, you know, we had that group. I had a group of people that came to game night. We did that once or twice a month. Uh, it became a recurring thing, and we still continued it on after we all had sort of went our separate ways. Um, but you know, it's not for everybody. Um, you know, same way that things like happy hour aren't meant for everybody. You know, not everybody's into that sort of thing, and that's the challenge, right? If you're trying to create a culture or work towards an inclusive culture, uh, it's tough because not everybody likes everything that, you know, other people might enjoy. Uh, you know, some people don't like tabletop games. <laughs> I believe it. Uh, and it's tough, right? You want to try and make people feel inclusive. Uh, so yeah, I don't know if I have particular advice there other than try and pay attention to the people around you. Um, you know, if they are in, an environment to where they feel they can say, Hey, you know, I'm not comfortable doing this or this isn't really of interest to me. Fine. Um, the thing you want to avoid in my opinion is the notion of like political pressure, right? Oh, if I don't go to happy hour or if I don't go to game night or if I don't go to wherever, uh, will I look like I'm not a team player kind of thing. And to me, that's the kind of thing you want to, I would want to avoid essentially. Um, you know, the idea is you want to create an environment that's constructive, uh, positive. Um, it's not going to be 100% inclusive because that's really difficult to do. Um, but it is inviting. Um, and it is, there's no repercussion of not participating, essentially. Right. I like that answer. Um, I, I have a related question. You were my manager for uh, this, this summer and... Um, I don't know if you have any insight into why my managers always quit. I have a, a long chain now of, of managers that, that quit at, at our, my current employer and a previous employer. Uh, I don't think your manager had to still quit. Uh, I think he just wanted to quit actually. <laughs> uh, probably. <laughs> uh, I, I know it's a joking question, but I honestly, I, you know, your having been your manager wasn't a motivator for me leaving <laughs> whatsoever. You. <laughs> um, you know, there are, and that's the thing, right? Is like there are always going to be opportunities around. Uh, part of you know, we're talking about career advice or any of that sort of thing. There's always going to be jobs out there you want to potentially, if, you, if you're interested in wanting to make a move or grow your career, and if that means moving somewhere else, 
um, you want to be open to opportunities, um, you know, actively or passively. Um, passively, I would say that's sort of where your portfolio can come into play because that sort of sits there kind of like a passive income almost in terms of uh, generating interest. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of times career growth happens with you moving to another position that might offer you either more incentives, monetarily speaking, or, you know, more career growth opportunity. Um, and, you know, it happens. It's not a reflection on, you know, not necessarily a reflection on the people around you. It, it's more just something comes along that is advantageous for you for your career. Um, that is assuming that you're not leaving because of toxicity or something right. like that, which, you know, if you, you are good on you because, you know, it's tough to leave secure situations uh, for the unknown. Um, but yeah, you want to be open to opportunities and, you know, they'll come around uh, and people move around. The, the benefit of that, I think, is as you move around or as people around you move, um, sure, you have to start new relationships and build those trusting relationships again. It's sort of like, you know, a new going to a new school kind of situation. Um, but your network grows, right? If you worked with some people, they went to some other job and somebody else went to a different job and your network grows. Uh, if all you know are the people around you at the job that you've had for you know X years, you might know a lot of people, but they're all in the same location. Uh, so it doesn't really necessarily benefit you from a, a networking perspective as much as potentially this is speculation. But I would assume if you had a network that is more dispersed, uh, it's probably more beneficial for you if you were looking to move somewhere else or seek other opportunities. Yeah, I think for, for better or worse, that's particularly true for those of us living in areas that aren't, um, you know, the Bay Area or other you know, big tech hubs. Um, I live in the the uh, metropolitan tech hub of Raleigh, but uh, you live out in rural North Carolina, and you're not just interacting you know, routinely with uh, people in your it, 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 not not you know face to face with people in your uh, professional orbit. Um, and the, the internet's really nice for that too. But um, I've certainly found that to be true now with nine years in industry, knowing a lot of people at a lot of places. And you know, not only have I moved to a variety of companies, but those people that I've worked with are, are at a variety of companies. And um, it, it just does give you really good perspective. Uh, and I, I'm grateful for that. And, you know, not, not that that's necessarily a reason to <laughs> job hop, um, but it's a side benefit of moving around and, and being at, at different places. And um, it's great to have people that you can, you know, call and, and find out about their company or maybe even um, take a job with, which, I mean, that's exactly how you came on to, to uh, my current employer uh, last year is, you know, I, I was brought on and then I said, Hey, we should talk to my friend who I worked with before. Um, and <laughs> it's great when that kind of thing works out, right? That's, that's a nice way to get a job. Right. Any other directions you'd like to go before we wrap up? Just be, open to opportunities, be open-minded, realize that people have different perspectives and they come to the table with different experiences, um, you know, and uh, 
try and understand that so that way you can create a constructive, positive environment that will enable you to generate a network, uh, you know, and potentially build a reputation that is something that can help you towards your path of success, uh, I guess, depending on how you define success. Very nice. I like it. Uh, do you want to tell people where they can find you on uh, Twitter or your blog? My blog is brentonmallon.com. My Twitter, I think, is Brenton Mallon. Um, <laughs> you should know this by now. I think I'm on Instagram more than I am on Twitter these days. Uh, I like photography, as we know. So, yeah, I'm somewhere around. LinkedIn's pretty good. You are a, you're a man a of many hub. interests, and your Instagram is a good follow because you can find out about woodworking, stained glass, board games, dogs, flowers, all Everything. kinds of things. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for having me. It's yep. Been fun. Thanks for coming on into the hopper.